You're listening to a message from Oaks Church, Brooklyn. Our longing is to see heaven come to earth in our city. For more information on our church and community, please visit oaksbk.church. Hello. Today's reading comes from a paraphrase of Genesis 2. With hands caked in mud, the creator sets about the delicate task of making. Carefully, he leaves a, tra- leaves a trail of divine fingerprints across the lifeless lump, resting only to breathe and to bring the clay to life. Hand in hand, creator and creature enter the garden of God. Here, the man Adam would go about his work, turning the beautiful garden into a paradise, the width of the world itself. Everything he needed to begin his work was at his fingertips, every tree and plant brimming with abundance. Yet two trees stood apart, towering above the rest. One was life, the other was knowledge. And from that tree, man was forbidden to taste, lest he desired death. But man couldn't begin his work alone, and after naming the beasts, the creator decided to make him a partner, an equal to join him in his labor. As if from a dream, the creator chiseled from the man's rib the daughter of creation, a woman called Eve. In all their inherited glory, they ruled the garden like kings, walking with the creator and learning his wisdom. Though they were naked, neither knew shame, for shame is the spawn of chaos, and of chaos they knew very little. Praise be to God. Good morning. If you don't know me, my name is Ryan. I am one of the pastors here at Oaks Church Brooklyn. And we have been in the midst of a a series, and we started kind of two weeks ago, where for the next two to three years, probably three years, we're going to be journeying through the story of Scripture, the story of God. And the reason for this, if you're wondering, wow, that's a long commitment, Um, is because we want this story to be our story. And in order for this story to be our story, in order for us to truly live and breathe this thing, we have to know it. And so that's why we started this journey. And last week, if you weren't here, you can listen back to the podcast. Patrick took us through Genesis 1. And how I want to set this up for us, again, if you weren't here last week, is that for part of this teaching, we're just going to sit in the story. Often when we, when we preach and we sermonize, we, we jump quickly to meaning making. In other words, you hear a portion of the text and the preacher tells you what it's about and how you should apply it to your life, etc., etc., etc. But what I want to do for us today is just listen to the story and then together we can meditate on what it might be saying to us. Before we all do that, let's pray. <clears throat> Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come before you with ready hearts and open ears. Would you speak to us, and would we listen? Would we have the ears to hear and the courage to respond? Would this story take root in our hearts? Would it settle? Would it begin to send down roots into the very depths of our being and begin to produce life, God? We come with all our questions, all our cares, 
and we lay them before you, and we say, speak, Lord, your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen, and amen. So last week, Genesis 1, imagine, if you will, if you're, we were watching a film, we have this kind of wide shot, and all of a sudden the camera begins to narrow in. And imagine, if you will, a potter coming to a river to look for clay, piling it up on the shore, and then with deft and careful hands begin to shape out of nothing a somewhat familiar form. Hands, feet, a nose, eyes, all meticulously crafted, given shape and purpose by the subtle move of the artisan's hands. Rather than a cosmic disembodied voice that speaks and then things appear, we find a different portrait. We find a craftsman at the center of creation, imminent, near, as close as the touch of a hand. Watch long enough and you'll start to wonder why. Why would this divine maker, this one who could speak and very universes are uttered into being, why would he do with his hands what he could easily do with his speech? Maybe the creator likes getting his hands dirty. Or maybe as he looks out over his creation, he notices the need for a steward, someone to help him tend this good world he's made. Someone who's intimately linked to the dust, who knows well the smell of soil and the tender care required to tend his garden well. Maybe the creator likes sharing his authority. Maybe the creator loves the idea of partnership. Maybe the creator, rather than wanting to step back from his creation, kind of wind the clock and let it go, wants to see what happens when he puts it in the hands of another. Now we know this, the creator's world is good, but the joy he gets in sharing his creative power becomes something entirely new. It's almost as if the creator delights in sharing, in watching others model his own creative life, ordering and ruling their small plot of the earth like the creator orders and rules the cosmos. And so now, as we're watching this creator mold and shape, shape and form, he finishes his work. He, he puts his divine signature into the clay itself. He breathes. And with a smile, the same spirit that hovered over the chaotic waters before the earth is put into order now fills the lung of the clay creature until its lungs expand and for the first time takes a breath as man. Adam, Adam. Birth from the Adama, the dirt, the, the, the earth creature, the earth man. His, his lungs now filled with the very breath of God, alive, embodied, ensouled. Bearing the traces of the creator's fingerprints, made in his image and made to share in the divine life of God. <clears throat> this first human 
who we call Adam, though Adam is not a proper name, it is just the word for humanity, this first human stands in as the embodiment of the human race. Adam, Adam, represents all we are and all we are destined to be. Adam is set up as this priest king, one who serves as the creator's representative in creation, a steward who bears in part the maker's crown. In Adam, we get to see who we are and who we are called to be. In Adam, the portrait of humanity is set forth. You have to imagine as the ancient Israelites are telling these stories, and of course, as every young person asks, what am I here for? You can imagine fathers and mothers telling the story of the man risen out of dirt and given a name. And so the new man now filled with the life-giving power of the Spirit, alive, called to share in the stewardship of creation, has much to learn. The Creator then sets up for the man a garden. It's interesting. All of creation is ordered and beautiful, but but the Creator goes a step further and plants a garden where He places man. It's almost as if the creator makes for himself a temple where him and humanity would dwell together. Where humanity, Adam, would serve as a priest, worshiping his creator. How so? By bringing out the generative goodness and potential of the garden soil. In other words, when humanity, Adam, is raised from the dirt and placed in the garden, he automatically gets a task to make, to shape to mimic the creator who made and shaped the world. But he's not going to do it out there on his own. He's not going to do it on his own strength or in his own wisdom. No, no, no. He's going to do it within the confines of the garden. As almost if the garden's like a finishing school. Where the, where the creature would walk with the creator in the cool of the day and learn to mimic his movements, learn his wisdom. Here they would dwell together in utter harmony and side by side walk together, talking, fellowshipping, image, and creator, doing a divine dance, and together bringing out the beauty of the garden to extend to the whole earth. On those long walks, the creator would share his wisdom. And the man would listen and learn and begin to steward the earth according to the creator's wisdom. For a moment, if you'd take a moment, look at your own hands. Look at the the curve of the fingerprints, the the way the thumb allows you to grasp and hold things, how they're capable of such delicate movement and yet such chaotic violence. Like Adam's, yours are artisans' hands as well. You are still called to make and shape, to rule and grow. This is our right. This is what we were made for, to mimic the creator. 
And though we often misuse this gracious gift, though hands that can make and shape and turn stone into statue and paint into imagery, though we can do with these hands beautiful things, we often ball them in fists. Though we misuse them, the right has not decayed. We still make by the law in which we were made. But <clears throat> unlike us, <laughs> this first man knows nothing of toil. He knows of nothing of slack messages that go off at two in the morning. He knows nothing of meetings that should have been an email. He knows nothing of waking up early to get to the gym, to rush to work only to realize out of all the stress eating, the gym was worthless anyways. He knows nothing of toil. His work is a different kind of work. It's a generative work. It's life-giving. And he has everything he needs. There, there's no scarcity when he's working. Every tree is literally so full of fruit, it's falling to the ground. He has shade and things to look at, inspiration to behold. He has all the comforts he needs in the garden. He has everything at his disposal to plant and to harvest, to build and to shape. Nothing would be denied him, and all his life would be enjoyment. But among this abundance, above all the things he needs to do his work, there are two trees that stand above the rest. Their fruit was fuller, beautiful to the eye. One was like life itself, brilliant, bright, and brimming with promise. The other was alluring and seductive, oscillating between light and dark, as if the very chaos of creation was bound between its leaves. Where the trees got these qualities, the man could only guess, but before he could ask, the creator speaks. And he says this, work and keep this land, steward it, grow it, protect it, expand its borders until all my good world knows the bounty of your hands. Like me, you are an artisan, made to make and build, to govern and grow. All I have is yours, every tree, every root, every green growing thing, but this command and warning I give. Do not eat from the tree of knowledge. You will learn wisdom in time, but you will learn from me. I will teach you what is good and what is evil. I will show you where the chaos should go, but you must learn this from me, lest you take knowledge and attempt to tame that which is beyond your control. I bid you learn from me, for knowledge without my wisdom is certain death. Now, the creator himself knows what it is to be in community. See, this creator is a community of three, a perfect harmony, distinct yet one. And the creator longs for man to know this intimacy, the harmony of perfect kinship. And so he decides that it's not good for him to be alone. But even with all creation, all the animals, all the beautiful things the creator has made, none of them are a suitable partner. 
And so seeing this, the creator crafts from the man's rib an equal, like him yet distinct, a partner in labor who, like the man, would serve in the garden as a steward, a priestess overseeing the garden of God. And in each other, the man and woman would know the harmony and the intimacy of the creator, and in turn, would fill the world with his glorious image. And as they looked upon each other, they were naked, but neither knew shame. They had no secrets to hide, no troubles to keep, and neither wondered how they looked in the other's eyes. All creation rejoiced at their harmony, and together they began to work the ground. Eden's borders expanding one green plant at a time. But watching from the tall grass, a serpent slips out of sight. And unbeknownst to the stewards of creation, he plots their demise. This is where we're going to pause the story. What a good cliffhanger, of course. But there's a lot to take in of this story. If you can tell, obviously, this is a creative retelling of the account of Genesis 2. And the reason why we wanted to focus on this creative retelling is because we get to tell the story rather than just talk about the story. And so there's a lot for us here to unpack. <clears throat> in fact, we could probably do an entire series on Genesis 2 alone and its themes and implications. But here's how I want us to take this. I want us to sit with this story. And what rings true to you? What stands out to you? And I want you to hold this because as, we, as you kind of hold and sit with that question, what is sticking out to you in the story? I, I want to kind of share with you what's kind of standing out to me. But before we do that, an interesting point about that last moment with the serpent. We have to kind of now, this is where I have to get out of the, like, the storytelling into like the ner nerdy stuff, Okay. So pardon me, but it's something you wouldn't get just by reading your English Bible, and it's important for the narrative as it builds. The word naked in Hebrew used in, in, in this Genesis 2 passage is arumim, arumim. It means naked, nude, without clothes, naked, okay? In Genesis 3, 1, the serpent is said to be crafty. The word for crafty in Hebrew is arum. Now listen, naked arumim, crafty arum. You guys hearing the similarity in the pronunciation? That's intentional. Because what the author is setting up here is attention. Nakedness is akin to innocence, to a lack of knowledge, to be bare, to not know anything. When you're, when you're naked, you're a tabula rasa, blank slate. But the serpent is arum, is crafty. The serpent has knowledge, but, but that, that arum, it's a, it's a wisdom, but it's also like this kind of self-serving wisdom. And so the point of tension that we come to at the end of the story is what's going to happen when the man and woman who are Arumin meet the serpent who's Arum, what will happen when the innocent meet the crafty? 
And that's the kind of tension that's going to be held here as we journey into next week and next week's story. So I want you to hold that, hold that in your heads. Because when we come to next week and we explore Genesis 3, that, that clash between innocence, nakedness, and craftiness is going to be at the center of the story. But what about Genesis 2? Sitting with this text this week, I kind of went back and forth on how, like, what reflection could I give on this text outside of just telling the story and letting you sit with the story so you can kind of come to your conclusions about the story. Because that's, the, that's the, the, the tenor of this series is we want to tell the story and let you experience the story without so much of the middleman, right? So we've done that, and now I also wanted to leave you with something because it felt like, you know, sometimes you sit here like, wow, that was a really well-told story, Ryan. I have no idea what it means. And so sometimes you need like a little nugget, you know, a little, a little rabbit trail to follow so you can take this home and, and sit with it yourself. And as I was sitting this, with this story this week, I, I've always been struck by the image of God stooping into the dirt to make man. It's such a different portrait from Genesis 1. Genesis 1 God is disembodied. He's all-powerful. In fact, he's hovering over the face of the world. It's a completely different portrait of God. It's God as expansive and massive and large and unknowable, unattainable, completely transcendent, where his voice is the catalyst for creation itself. And then, as if a complete switch of the pendulum, we then end up in Genesis 2 where God seems personified as an artisan crafting with his hands. In fact, the word for form that is used in Genesis 2 when God forms man from the dust or when he forms him from the earth, from the clay, is the same word the Hebrew Bible uses of potters who make pottery. That God, the portrait of God is utterly distinct and different. We get a God who's literally at the potter's wheel. If you, you know, you're part of my imagination, you know, the, the Patrick Swayze scene, you know, like just at the wheel, molding and shaping. Like that is the portrait here of God intimately engaged in the art of making. That's always stuck with me. Because why do we get this portrait of God, vast, unknowable, large, massive, unattainable, transcendent, and then the very next chapter we get a God who's making with his hands? I think it's intentional. I think there's one way to hear these two parts of the story and go, man, here's another example, the Bible contradicting itself. Here we got God speaking and now he has to make man with his hands. Which one is right? Which one is true? Or maybe both portraits are there for a reason. Maybe there's something the Genesis to the, the writers of Genesis 2 in conjunction with the, with the writers of Genesis 1, there's, there's something about this per- portrait merging together that we need to know after we hear about God and all his power and speaking the world into existence that we have to hear about God and his nearness and his closeness and his imminence, that we get the portrait of God walking with humanity in the garden, making with his hands. Because I think when you look at the stories of Genesis 1 and 2 lined up together, you get a necessary corrective for our often how we engage with God. Here's what I mean. Many of us, for whatever reason, whether it's upbringing, life experience, we serve and worship the God of Genesis 1. The God who is distant, powerful, Able to do much, 
should be revered in awe, but can't really be seen, can't be touched, can't be known. And for some of us, our God, for whatever reason, circumstance, upbringing, theology, is the Genesis 2 God. He's near. He's close. He's as close as the mention of his name. He, he, he looks human to us. As if God is a stand-in for the best qualities of humankind. And the danger of these kind of divided portraits is that... On one hand, if your God is only located in Genesis 2, it will make for a God made in your image. If God is so near and so close that he's just simply a stand-in for the best qualities of humanity, then God is simply humanity par excellence, but losing all the grandness and authority that comes with being transcendent. But if God is only transcendent and all-powerful and knock you down, awe-inspiring thunder and lightning from heaven, then you end up with a God who can never be imagined at all. And I think these two stories are put at the beginning of Genesis 2, beginning of Genesis 1 and 2, for a necessary corrective. That you cannot just serve a transcendent almighty God who's the distant clockmaker who kind of winds the world into existence but doesn't care about you but kind of deserves your fear. Nor can we serve a God who's so knowable, so close to what we think we should be that he ends up just another voice in the plethora of voices and doesn't deserve obedience and awe. That you need a God who is both transcendent and imminent The problem is that's a paradox. How can you be transcendent and how can you be imminent? And this is why we come to the Lord's table. Because what we needed all along was an incarnate God. A God who is utterly vast, utterly unknowable, utterly powerful, omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, who is being itself, who outside of him there is no other, who is the first and the last, the unmoved mover, the alpha and omega, the beginning and the end, and you need that God to become a human and dwell in human form and walk with humanity and die as humanity and is raised to life as humanity. In other words, the portraits of Genesis 1 and 2 tease out what we all need, which is a God who becomes flesh, who is deserving of our respect, our obedience, a God that can make demands of us and yet knows the price of those demands because he felt them himself. And so here, as we come to this moment of reflection, we come to the Lord's table. And in the Lord's table, we get the transcendence of God, that from time immemorial, God decided to redeem us And how did he redeem us? By breaking his body and shedding his blood. And so my my encouragement to you today is, my question really is, what God has shaped your own experience of God? Have you been kind of locked in the Genesis 1 God? Like, I believe in God, but he's so far out there, how could I ever know him? And all I can really do is serve him out of fear. 
Or maybe our, our portrait has been locked in Genesis 2, that God is so close, but he's so close, he's like a friend. And so a friend can give you advice, but can never ask anything hard of you. And maybe today, it's the intersection of those ideas where we say God is the transcendent one, he is the imminent one, because God becomes a human being and dies as a human being. I leave you with that reflection. It's not the only reflection. And maybe you're walking away from that story saying, I got way other things I'm thinking about. That's cool too. We can talk about that at Sunday school. Um, but we, we, I did want to leave you with that because I think, I think, I think, for those of us whose God is locked in Genesis 1, we have been walking with the weight of a God we can't possibly know, but ironically, who desperately wants to be known. For those of us walking with just kind of the portrait of Genesis 2, we've been walking with a cool friend. But that friend this entire time says, hey, I'm also a king. And I am your friend. I am actually closer than a brother. But I'm also a brother that wears a crown. And maybe he's been asking you things. And you've been putting off the response. Because know what you can do? You can pause a call from a friend. You can't really pause a call from a king. I'll leave you with that. So worship team, um, hosts come up for communion. And why don't you all stand with me? And let's come to the Lord's table and reflect on a God who's utterly transcendent and yet close enough that he forms man with, the, with his hands. Let me just pray for us and lead us to the table. Holy and gracious Father, in your infinite love, you made us for yourself. And when we sinned against you, you, you yourself became subject to evil and death. In your mercy, you sent your only son, Jesus Christ, into the world for our salvation. And in obedience to his will, he stretched out his arms upon the cross and offered himself once for all, that by his suffering and death we might be saved. By his resurrection, he broke the bonds of death. He trampled hell and Satan under his feet. As our great high priest, he ascended to your right hand in glory that we might come with confidence before the throne of grace. On the night he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus Christ took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, Jesus took the cup. When he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. Therefore, we proclaim the mystery of faith, that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. We celebrate the memorial of our redemption. O oh, Father, in this sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, we offer you these gifts. Sanctify them by your word and Holy Spirit to be for your people the body and blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we come to you transcendent, imminent, incarnate, and we say, meet us now. Feed us by your holy food that we might truly know you and not just truly know you, but be truly transformed by you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The gifts of God for the people of God.
come and receive.